Okay. Or you just have to mute yourself. Sorry. Yeah, I got it. Your grand. Thanks, Maria. Um, welcome everyone to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Audrey Ann, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from County Mead in Ireland, and I will be your host for today's study. Our co-hosts are Maria F, Nancy J, and Sue L. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either the host or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat function. Please note the speaker Harlan will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the questions and answer sessions, which follows, will not be recorded. We will post a link to the previous week's recording in the chat function. We ask if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason. Um, I will now turn you over to Harlan G. Thanks, Harlan. Thank you, and thank you to everybody who makes this possible. And I am far from the only person that makes this possible. There are people behind the scenes that make sure they arrange for the Zoom room to be there for us. There are people who do the money. There are people who organize the service. There's lots and lots of people who do a lot of service on this and they organize the recordings. 4,000 playbacks of the recording. That is pretty astounding. It blows me away, I'll tell you that. And uh, it's just pretty amazing that uh, this has grown. This, for those who don't know, I, I mention this every so often. This started as a live thing at a place called the Coffee Plantation in Scottsdale, Arizona, 74th and Shea. There might have been seven or eight people that attended regularly. Some spotsiered in, say spotsiered out. Uh, but it remained at about seven to eight people pretty consistently. Sometimes it would dip down, sometimes it would go up. And then people started saying, I want to be part of it. And they started calling and we started conference calling people. And then the pandemic hit a couple of years ago and it turned into this. We've been getting 150 people pretty consistently. And so I want to thank each and every one of you for participating too. This is our 94th week and we couldn't do this without each and every one of you who attends regularly. So my thanks is, is to you as well. Um, we are in the chapter, there is a solution. It's the first chapter that was completed after Bill wrote his own story. His story was never intended to be the lead chapter of the book. It was intended to headline the story section of the book. And then a guy by the name of Tom Uzzle was called in and Tom Uzzle and Janet Blair edited the big book. Tom Uzzle edited the content and Janet Blair cleaned up the grammar, cleaned up the spellings, cleaned up different words, different things like that. But it was a guy by the name of Tom Uzzle who, was, who knew uh, Hank Parkhurst he was brought in, he edited the big book, and he moved Bill's story out of the story section into the main body of the book. And originally it was chapter two, because the doctor's opinion in the first 10 printings was chapter one. Uh, excuse me, in the first edition was chapter one. In the first 10 printings, his name wasn't in there. But anyway, 
This is the first completed chapter. So this set the tone of how the book would read, how the God idea would be presented. There's just a lot of things in this chapter that are very, very important, but we're gonna focus on page 23. So I'll give you a minute to get to page 23, but while you're turning your pages, while you're getting your book, I just want to remind you of something that I happen to have as or happen to think is pretty precious for me. The title of the chapter is a beautiful, beautiful promise. There is a solution. And there is, is, the, is, is something that I emphasize is because what we have to remember is for thousands of years, thousands of years, there was no solution. There was nowhere to go. There was nothing that could be done. There was nothing. This was believed. Alcoholism, gluttony, drug addiction were believed to be a situation of lack of character, lack of willpower, lack of guts, lack of stamina, weak will, stupidity, insanity, and it is a form of insanity, but what we have is a solution for the first time in history. Now there is a solution for me. And I hear this in meetings, not all the time, but I hear, oh, there's as many ways to work the steps as there are people in OA. Not for moi, not for moi, for me. And I'm not telling you what to do. You have to do what you have to do. We have no monopoly on God. I, I certainly don't have a monopoly on anything. This is for me. There's one way to do the steps, the big book way. That's it. End of story. Game, set, match. I am not capable of making choices very easily. When I have to make a choice, usually I get scared that I'm going to make the wrong choice. So what I do historically is I'll try to make the choice that I think will please you. So you'll think I'm smart. You'll think I'm a good guy. If you think I should get a blue car, I'm going to get a blue car. If you think I should get the green car, I'm going to get the green car. Because after all, I don't want you to be upset with me. When all along, I wanted the red car. So now I buy the red car. I buy what I want because this program has put me in touch with who I am. And as crazy as that is sometimes, it's a real gift. It's a real, real gift to, for the first time in my life, get in touch with who I am, what I think, and what I want. Now, that doesn't mean I'm always going to get what I want or that my thoughts are not always correct, but at least I'm in touch with them. And that's a gift. So there is a solution means... I don't have to pull one from column A, two from column B. I just follow the book and it makes it very, very simple because I don't have to make choices. All right, let's go to page 23 and we're at the top of the page and it says, these observations would be academic and pointless. What observations? The observations of the alcoholic that we have been going through, just to bring you back up to speed. If our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Now this next sentence is gonna be a sentence that we're gonna talk about for a while. And that's why I stopped where I stopped last week, because I didn't wanna give this 
sentence, this paragraph, anything but my full attention, because it's one of the paramount things in the book. The next sentence is, and I hope it's highlighted in your book. If it's not, make sure you take care of that. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. We're going to stop right there. We're not even going to finish the paragraph because we're going to talk for just a little while here. It says, therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. Joe and Charlie like to use the example of picking up a glass of water. And Charlie Parmalee, he used to say, everything has to start with a thought. He says, I can't even pick up this glass of water without thinking about it first. You know, he's right. I couldn't pick it up either without thinking about it first. But I want to go into a little bit of a deviation from just reading through here for just a minute, because this sentence is so important that it really deserves our attention. From the time I was a little boy, before I could talk, before I could walk, before I could do anything, there was something about me that I didn't know how to express to anybody. And that was, I was afraid. Now, this is not why I'm a compulsive overeater, but I've been afraid of the dark my whole life. I don't like walking into a dark room, even to this day. And I'm 67 years old. I keep lights on in the house, not bright lights, but I keep lights on so that I don't have to walk into a dark room. I have a nightlight in my own bathroom upstairs. I have a two-story house, which I needed like I needed strep throat. I bought this house for the location. And because it was was very affordable. I didn't really want a two-story house. It's hard for me sometimes, but um, it's, it's the location is a 10. So I said, okay, you know, give me the house. Anyway, from the time I was a kid, uh, I was always afraid of the dark. I was always afraid of the boogeyman. I was always afraid. I, I'm afraid in social situations. Now, if like five of us are sitting and having a conversation and then some somebody comes and joins us, I always get a little panicky. And I don't think it was because people abused me for being fat or they made me an object of ridicule. I don't know that it's because of that. But I do know that it is a true fact that when other people like come to join us, unless I'm super familiar with them, it can sometimes be a little frightening for me. Even when I'm in an OA meeting and there's like eight of us or four of us or 10 of us, whatever. And then people come late. I'm like, what? You know, I'm like panicked a little bit, not to the point of absurdity, but it just panics me a little bit. And um, when I stay in a hotel, I will turn the light on in the bathroom and then close the door almost to where it's closed. So there's just a little bit of light shining out so that when I get up and I'm not in my house, I'm in a hotel, I can I, I don't stub my feet. Anyway, we've beat that dead horse enough. You get the picture. But I've always been a lot, a lot uncertain. Is that a sentence? I've always been a lot. I've always been very uncertain of things, even though I had no reason to be. My mother and father were very, very contentious, violently so contentious. They hated each other and they showed their love for one another with insults that you wouldn't say to your worst enemy and lit cigarettes flying through the air and pots and pans flying through the air. And they spoke to each other like you wouldn't speak to your worst enemy. 
and I'm growing up in this. And so I became very, very frightened of things as a young kid. And there was a thought that would come into my mind and it was a false thought. And here's the thought that came into my mind that was not true. I'm hungry. That's not true. I'm not hungry. I thought I was hungry. If you put me on a lie detector, I would pass that I was telling the truth that I was hungry and I would eat food as the result of thinking that I was hungry, but I really wasn't. What I was, was I was searching for what Dr. Silkworth in his opinion calls the effect. What is the effect? The effect is that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating certain foods. And those foods will give me an almost psychotic delusional effect. They will make the world a beautiful, peaceful, groovy, loving place for about nine seconds. For about nine seconds, the world is a beautiful, beautiful place. And everything in it is exactly as I would have wanted it. If I ruled the world, this is exactly what I would have created. And about 10 seconds, 12 seconds, or a minute in, the horror, the shame, the pall of remorse is upon me. Now, what I learned along life's path is that my brain was a brain who did not like what it saw in the world. And by trying to arrange the exterior selfishness, self-seeking, the script that I have in my head, when I couldn't arrange everything quite so, I turned to food. And food worked like a charm. Boy, did it work. It took that edge right out. And it made me feel like a million dollars after taxes. The only problem is it wasn't real. You know, I was, I, I was uh, living in the, I lived in the apartments across the street from where I live now. And I lived there right in the aftermath of my divorce. And I was, uh, I was, it was a Saturday morning and I was going to the coffee plantation to do big book. I was going there to do this session and the phone rang. It was a Saturday morning and it was a woman from San Francisco, California. And she asked me about my availability to, um, to do a big book study the next Friday, six days in advance, usually inner groups will give me three, four months, five months, a year worth of lead time. She says, you need to get here. And she says, I'm with the local AA group and we're having an NA and AA big book retreat. And I says, I don't mean to stop you. I says, but I am not an alcoholic. I'm not in NA and I'm not in AA. She says, that's okay. We've heard you and we want you to come. She says, our speaker has just been diagnosed with, uh, with uh, fourth 
degree or uh, step four or stage four pancreatic cancer. And they've admitted her to the hospital immediately. You need to get here. I says, well, I've got to see if I can situate the dogs. And I called over there on Rain Tree Avenue and I had to situate that I had two German shepherds. I couldn't just leave them in the alley. So I, they said they could take them and that's fine. And I said, the ticket just six days out is gonna be very expensive. She says, we don't care. Just to, just to satisfy your curiosity, my ticket to San Francisco with six days notice from Phoenix, maybe 10 years ago was $1,120, $1,120 to get there with only six days notice. But I came up there and it was a Saturday morning, just like today. And I was talking to some people that were in their early 20s that were crystal meth addicts and cocaine addicts and alcoholics and God knows what they were. And I was saying how comparatively food is a very tough addiction. And the woman was sitting there. She might have been 22, 23 years old. You know, they say out of the mouths of babes. This is what she imparted on me. And I'm going to share it with you this morning. I, we were talking about the various addictions and what this addiction means as opposed to that addiction. And she said to me, listen to this at least you found something that worked in the food. She says, I didn't discover weed, booze, and meth until I was 15. She says, for the first 15 years of my life, I was scared. I was angry. I was selfish. I was miserable. I was suicidal and nothing worked. Nothing worked. So at some level, the food destroyed my life. Yes, no doubt about it. The food ransacked my life, but the food saved my life. And the very thing that saved my life turned in its path like Bill's boomerang and cut me to ribbons. But for the first few years of my life, food was my only salvation. Yes, it destroyed my dreams. Yes, I was emasculated physically and emotionally by this disease. Yes, I went on my first date when I was 35 years old. Yes, it sucks that I still have to pay the price for the Kentucky Fried Chicken that I ate in 1967. I'm still paying the price for it today. I still pay the price after all the recovery, after all the steps, after all the retreats I've done, after all these big book studies, I pay a price for the Dunkin' Donuts that I ate in 1971. And I hate paying that price. Haven't I paid enough, I say to God? But it's those memories that keep me humble. And it is those torturous memories that become my greatest gift so I can pass it to others. So the main problem centers in the mind rather than in the body. And in this book, going forward from here, we're not going to talk about food anymore. We're not going to talk about eating anymore like that. We're going to center on the mind. And what we're about to do in the working of the steps is we are going to substitute the effect of the steps 
for the effect of the food and the steps will do for me slowly what the food did for me instantly, but instead of extracting a death-defying price, I am going to be rewarded with gifts and miracles that are beyond my comprehension. I am going to be rewarded so that I can live a productive life today and I can pay my bills today and I can function in the world today and I can walk three miles a day, six days a week and I can pay my taxes and I owe no man a dime. I don't have to live in the guilt and the shame and the horror of what I ate yesterday. I don't have to worry that when I go to the grocery store today, after we go to the, uh, to go to the Peter jungle after today, when I eat at Peter jungle with some of you, I'm going to go to the store and I'm going to buy groceries and I don't have to hide from anybody or worry about who sees me because they're going to look in my cart and find Oreo cookies. There'll be no, unless somebody sneaks them in, that would be a funny joke almost, but there'll be no Oreo cookies in my shopping cart today. There'll be no Doritos in my shopping cart today. And I don't have to make up lies because I can live my life above board. A very smart man on a freezing cold February afternoon in Chicago poked his finger in my chest one day and said to me that if everything you did today, everywhere you went today, everything that came in and out of your mouth and came in your ears was on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, are you okay with that? Because if you are, you're in recovery. If you're not, you're not. I am in recovery today, free of anybody that sees me or anybody that I run into. I don't have to worry that I told you a lie. I don't have to worry that I owe you money. That's freedom. And the mind that we're concentrating on will be alleviated through the working of the steps that my insides and my outsides will give me peace. Yes, there are things that happen that I don't like. Things I read about in the newspaper, things I hear on the radio, things that happen to me personally, I don't always like them. I wish I wasn't single. I wish I was able to retire. I'm 67 years old. I don't want to go beat my brains out, but I have to do what I have to do. And there are worse things in life. It's okay. But I have a life beyond comprehension in this program. I have friends. Maybe I don't know you very long. Maybe I've never even met you. But we are bound together because we speak and we understand the language of the heart. There's not a problem I have. There's not a challenge I have that I haven't taken to the people of OA. And they have rallied around me for the last 43 years. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. So what we're going to recognize is that food was never the problem. Food was the solution to the problem. And if food is the solution to the problem, what is the problem? The problem is the buildup of those emotions. I lack power over guilt, shame, happiness, anger, fear, 
lust. I lack power over these emotions. I ate because something happened. I ate because of boredom when nothing happened. I ate because it was a day with a Y in it, because I'm a human being with all kinds of emotions sadness and happiness and fear and anger. And when, when nothing is happening, my mind will go back into the file cabinet and all of a sudden I'll conjure up, oh, that witch, she rejected me three years ago. Oh, that witch, she rejected me 20 years ago. Oh, that witch, she divorced me 10 years ago. Oh, that other person they did, that's how my mind will work. And it will conjure up reasons to eat because the ego will want to be in control. The only force in my life greater than the force of the illness is the power of God. So food was never the problem. Food was the solution to the problem. So what we're going to do this point forward, this moment forward, is we are now going to seek with everything in us through the guidance of the book, we are going to seek another solution besides the food. And that's what this is all about, Charlie Brown. This is about an alternative solution. And as those emotions build, we are gonna find steps 10, 11, 12 to be indispensable and highly effective at diffusing anger and fear and doubt. We're gonna find them highly effective at creating in our minds a dependence upon a power greater than ourselves, which we can choose to call anything you want. We're going to find that power, and in finding that power, we can overwhelm temporarily the illness of compulsive overeating. There is no cure. We have an illness that only a spiritual experience will conquer or spiritual awakening. I've never had a spiritual experience. I had one once in about the ninth grade, but I can't talk about it now. But anyway, the bottom line is, is that this is what this is all about, Charlie Brown. Finding a substitute for Oreo cookies. Finding a substitute for Oreo cookies is going to be what we're going to do together. Let's continue, but let's remember always that it is the main problem of the alcoholic that the, the centers in the mind rather than the body. The allergy can only be triggered if the food goes in the body. If the food doesn't go in the body, the allergy cannot manifest. Clancy Immislin tells us, told a story, he's passed away now. Clancy Immislin is one of my heroes. And Clancy told a story uh, many years ago, it's on his podcast of a woman who was 80 years old and she was hospitalized uh, for uh, something unrelated to any addiction or anything. She was hospitalized as, a, as 80 year olds will be. And she was a strict Baptist her whole entire life, never took a drink of liquor in her entire life. And she was having some trouble sleeping because some of the medication that she was on when she came home from the hospital was keeping her up at night. And so her adult children called the doctor and the doctor said, put a little brandy in her milk. 
And when you put the brandy in her milk, it'll help her sleep. So she's 80 years old. They keep putting the brandy in the milk. Long story short, she had never had liquor before. And by the time she was 84 years old, she died an active alcoholic. She died in active alcoholism because once that brandy went in the milk, it triggered the allergy. She started nosing around for liquor. And within four years, she was in not only active alcoholism, but hyperactive alcoholism and died drunk. So the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. Let's continue. I hope we've made this point that this is very, very important. We must keep the food down. Absolutely keep the food down. But what we're going to be concentrating on now is the steps which will ease and comfort our minds so that we don't see the need to pick up the food. If we don't see the need to pick up the food, if we already feel better, then our minds will not tell us to pick up Ritz crackers. They will not tell us to pick up Doritos because they won't see the need. And so we have circumvented temporarily the disease. I hope we've made that clear. That's why we got Charlie Brown and everybody behind us today, because we always want to make that point. That's what it's all about, Charlie Brown. And that's why we got old Charlie looking at us today. I'm on page 23. If you ask, hold on a minute. Everything is in bloom here in Arizona. The trees have that yellow crap on them, the buds and the trees. And behind me over here, there's citrus trees and they're blooming and other trees. I don't know, maybe they're not citrus, but whatever they are, they're blooming. And man, ooh, it is, it is allergy city down here in Scottsdale. It's just, and I live across from a high school and there's like 80 bazillion trees on the campus of the high school and they're all in bloom. Holy mackerel, it is, it's allergy city over here in Arizona. Oh. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. They sound like the philosophy of a man who having a headache beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he can't feel the ache. If you draw this fallacious reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, he will laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. And here is the truth of the matter. And this is something that people have been asking me for 67 years. Harlan, why are you eating that? I'm hungry. No, you're not. Even they knew I couldn't possibly be hungry. I just finished dinner, lunch, I was not hungry. I was searching for a solution to the fear that I felt because there was girls around and they're pretty and I'm scared of them. Or there was boys around who are older and they're going to pick on me because I'm fat or there's an aardvark around and whatever. I was scared. I was lonely. I was alone in a crowd. 
I always felt different than, I always felt separate from, different than, and apart from, even in the most familiar of situations. And that feeling went away when I was chewing on a French fry. I didn't have to feel that intense loneliness. I didn't have to feel something that I carried around with me for half a century. The intense hatred that I felt when I saw myself in the mirror. The inadequacy that I felt when I looked at my own life and my own accomplishments, and I looked at what I looked like in the mirror, and I compared myself to other people, and they came out on top. And when I compare, I despair. And when I compare, I always come out less than them, worse than them, fatter than them, uglier than them, poorer than them, a victim not like them who are so lucky, I unfortunately am a victim of, and then fill in the blank. And that feeling of self-hatred, that feeling of dread that another day has dawned and God damn it, I'm still alive and I so want to be dead. And here I am again in a world of people that I do not understand, that don't understand me, and I don't know how to live in their world. Well, for the first time, an instruction manual has been printed. The name of the book is Alcoholics Anonymous. And it teaches me everything I need to know about how to live in the world. It teaches me what I need to do to live in the world. You can't feel that alone, scared, angry, and not reach for something. Otherwise, I would have blown my brains out. The food, to a great degree, killed me, yes, but it saved me. It saved me. And it made it possible for me to live another day. When something does something like that for you, it becomes a difficult thing to let go of. That's why we struggle. That's why we have issues giving up the food. We're giving up our lovers our friends, our confidants, Reese's peanut butter cup and frozen pizza, shoestring potato chips and Burger King Whoppers were there when none of you were there. When my mother died, Burger King was there. When my father died, Colonel Sanders was there. Little trivia question for all you trivia buffs. What's Colonel Sanders' first name? I'll give you three seconds to think of it. Colonel Sanders' first name is? Harlan. Harlan. It's Harlan, Colonel Harlan Sanders. He I got had, it. There you go. Very good. Very good. Okay. But Colonel Sanders' first name was Harlan. Okay. Let's move on. Page 23, middle of the page. 
Once in a while, he may tell the truth. And the truth, strange to say, is usually he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Let's stop right there for just a second. When they say this disease is cunning, baffling, and powerful, this is exactly what they're referring back to. I don't know why I did what I did, and I bet you don't know why you did either. You were doing it almost because it's just what you do, because that to a great degree is 100% true. Your brain trained you that it wants to feel good. And your brain sent you in the direction of Chips Ahoy cookies because Chips Ahoy cookies did for you what no one else could have done for you, that nothing else could have done for you. And the Chips Ahoy cookie made it possible for you to live another day without jumping out the window. Some drinkers have excuses with which they are satisfied part of the time. Like, oh, if you were married to her, you'd drink too. Or, oh, if you were married to him, you'd drug too. You'd have affairs too. You'd do this, you'd do that. No, not if you're not addicted, you wouldn't because food doesn't do for the normal eater what it does for me. Food does not get, forget the allergy for just, just, just for a minute, forget the physical allergy. Yes, every time I eat Doritos, yes, I have an actual physical craving for more of the same. No question about it. There are ingredients in Doritos. There's things in Doritos that will jazz my biology to the point where I will not be able to stop eating Doritos. Forget that for just one minute and then you can pick it back up again. I eat because it's the only thing that worked. I didn't eat like that because my mother had three distinct personalities and was crazy. I didn't eat like that because my dad didn't speak such good English. Every time I would start yelling at him, he could say something like, you want to go to Lincoln Village? Now, God, why can you say village, but you can't say what I, oh, I used to get so mad at him. Why can't you just, and his response was always the same response. I never vent to day camp, mid a Superman lunchbox. I never vent to day camp, mid a Superman lunchbox. What does that mean? I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? And he'd look at me and say, I never vent to day camp, mid a Superman lunchbox. I did not know what the hell that meant. And then I figured it out. It meant he wasn't an American, that when he was a little boy, he had a lot of worries and, and concerns that I, as an American, do not have. I don't have the worry of, are they going to come and kill us tomorrow, even though he said they would. I don't have the worry that people around us in other villages have been murdered. I don't have that worry on my plate. And I also spoke the language of the country I was born into, just like he did. And he was 14 years old, 14 years old. And he was forced by murder and mayhem and hatred to go live in another country where he knew no one, did not speak the language and had nothing. And he did the best he could. And he died in America over 10,000 miles away from where he was born. 
And I didn't eat because of that. I didn't eat because I had a Superman lunchbox. Oh, I remember what. Well, I had a little Joe lunchbox from Bonanza and I started crying. I said, I want Superman. I want Superman. So they switched it. They took back the Bonanza and they gave me the Superman. That's where he got that story from. That's right. I remember now. Okay. Anyway, not important. That was more important probably for me than you. But anyway, that was the story. I didn't want to bonanza lunchbox i wanted a superman lunchbox okay so let's continue page 23 but in their hearts they really do not know why they do it once this malady has a real hold they are a baffled lot that's to say the least we really don't know why the hell we're doing what we're doing we just know we can't stop we just know we want to do it more than we want to breathe and we look at ourselves and we say to ourselves with food in the mouth, tomorrow will be better. Tomorrow will be better. And we know that's not true. We know that's not true. They cannot tell that they cannot differentiate the true from the false. That's what it says in the doctor's opinion. There is the obsession. What is an obsession? An obsession is a thought that pushes aside all thoughts to the contrary, that somehow someday he will, they will beat the game. I never saw myself as fat in my fantasies. In my fantasy, I was going to be Steve McQueen, Sean Connery, uh, the quarterback of the Bears, the first baseman for the Cubs, the pitcher for the Cubs. I was always somebody else rather than who I was, because looking at who I was, looking at the reality of what was going on would have made me jump out the window. So I lived in a fantasy land created in my mind how they but they often suspect they are down for the count how true this is few realize in a vague way their families and friends sense that these drinkers are abnormal but everybody hopefully awaits the day when the sufferer will rouse himself from his lethargy and assert his power of will and the tragic truth is if the man be a real alcoholic the happy day may not arrive. If it wasn't for this program and the grace of God, I wouldn't have arrived. He has lost top of 24 control at a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic. He passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. Let's stop right there for just a second. Every one of you have gotten up hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times and said, damn it, I'm not going to eat that way today. And that turned into, I shouldn't eat this way today. And that turned into, okay, I'll get them tomorrow. The most unbelievable desire is of no avail because nothing else puts the fire out like the very thing that's killing you. Food, drugs, liquor, gambling, they're double-edged swords. They're double-edged swords. They kill and they heal. They kill and they heal. But they do a lot more killing than healing and every day that goes on and on and on, they kill more and heal less. 
There's a story in the back of the big book written by a woman that says, I couldn't get drunk and I couldn't get sober. At some point, the food stopped working. It stopped working. It stopped putting the fire out. I had all the bad things about the eating, none of the good things about the eating. The food stops working after a while. And as I age, the devastation from the food became worse and worse and worse and worse. And the benefit of the high that I got from the Almond Joy was not even there anymore. I had to eat 20 Almond Joys just to get off it all. I had to eat 20 Almond Joys or eat five Whoppers or five whatever, or 10 of those or 20 of those just to get any kind of buzz going at all. The food stops working. And as I age and my metabolism slows and my ability to burn the food slows and my testosterone plummets at, through the aging process, I got fatter and fatter and fatter and fatter and fatter. Let's continue. The tragic situation has already arrived in practically every case long before it is suspected that we are over, over, over any point of self-restraint long before anybody could have stopped us. There's no turning back. There's no turning back. We are beyond help at this point. Now, the next couple of paragraphs are paramount to our understanding of the disease. I don't like what I see on the clock. I'm gonna do the best I can. We might even run over today. So Maria or Sue or Nancy or whomever, just be prepared because I'm not gonna cut this part short at all. And notice that this is in italics, what Charlie Parmelay would call squiggly writing. And it costs them more money to do this. So it must be important. The fact is that most alcoholics for reasons yet obscure have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force. The memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago, we are without defense against the first drink. Now, he has brought into play here another part of the mental twist. And that is the mental blank spot, the built-in forgetter. When I was not quite two, my mother lit the Sabbath candles every Friday night. And I was a little boy. I do not remember this story. It has been told to me 30,000 times. I do not remember this at all. Zero. I don't remember. And there was, the candle was burning. And there was what I thought was water at the bottom of the wick. It's not water. It's melted wax. I stuck my thumb in there at the base of the wick of the candle. 
Apparently, I screamed so loud. We lived in an apartment building that two of the neighbors knocked on the door of my apartment, wondering if everybody was okay. And it took my mom and dad a long time to calm me down. And I was really, really hurting from burning my finger on the base of that candle. I wasn't even two years old. I have never since then stuck my finger at the bottom of the wick of a candle to see if it was hot ever again. My brain registered hot equals caution, hot equals stay away. Charlie Parmalee likes to tell a story that he was one of a eight children family and they used to wash, he used to use the word wash. I don't know why certain people put an R in the word wash. There is no R in wash, it's wash, not wash. But he used to say wash. And he says, it was a Saturday night and he stuck his ass on the stove, not deliberately, and burned his butt real badly. He says, I've never had the urge to back up bare-butted to a stove and stick my butt on a hot stove ever again. Because where burning ourselves is concerned, or traffic is concerned, or bullets or knives are concerned, or whatever you want to think of is concerned, we are reasonably cautious. Now, pastrami has burned me again and again and again and again. Candy has burned me again and again and again and again. Yet, I will not be able to even remember as I stand in the store at 590 pounds, I will not be able to remember that I'm emasculated, that I've never been on a date in my life, that it's Saturday night. And once again, it's going to be the threesome, me, Sarah Lee and little Debbie. Once again, it's going to be the threesome. Once in a while, we would invite Ben and Jerry, but only if they were good. But the bottom line is, here I am again, I'm going to go and eat this, this, and this that I know I shouldn't be eating because I cannot bring into my mind with sufficient force the memory of what this food does to me. I can only focus in on what it's going to do for me. And that part of the mental twist is called the mental blank spot, the built-in forgetter. And it is the sidekick of the mental twist. It is part and parcel to the disease. It is as much a part of the disease as anything. If you could remember what Almond Joy did to you, what $100,000 bars did to you, what Red Hot Ranch on Devon Avenue French fries did to you, you'd never eat them if you were normal. But not being normal, I eat them because I cannot live without this effect. It is so elusive that I will chase it to the gates of insanity or death. I will chase it to the gates of insanity 
or death. <sighs> there are people, some are here today, too bad. They will never give up the food. They can't see life without it because they cannot bring into their minds with sufficient force the consequences of this behavior. Let's continue. And this will be the last paragraph we're going to do today. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. My tried and true excuse to myself was, ah, tomorrow I'm going to go on my diet. Tomorrow I'm going to be good. Tomorrow I'm going to be legal. Tomorrow I'm not going to do this. Tomorrow's going to be different. But for tonight, tonight we ride. And I would fork over money that should have gone to the landlord. I would fork over money that should have gone to buy me auto insurance. I would fork over money that should have gone to the IRS. I would fork over money that should have gone to people that I owed money to. I was spending money that wasn't mine for food I didn't even want to eat that was killing me. Normal people don't do that. Normal people don't do that. I'm going to say it one more time. Normal people don't do that. I do it because I'm sick. I have an illness of the mind and I have an illness of the body. And part of that mental illness, part of the mental piece, the contingent of it is the mental blank spot. I forget that when I get out of a car, I can't get out real easy. I forget that I can't get in a car. I forget that I can't do the things that my friends can do. I can't look like them. Clothes don't hang on me like they hang on them. I don't have girls giggling and laughing at my stupid jokes and flipping their hair like they do. I don't have the social life that they have. I don't have the options that they had, that I couldn't get a good job because who's going to hire you when you're four, five, six, seven hundred pounds? Who's going to hire you? So my dreams were smashed. My dreams were extinguished. I didn't dare dream dreams. I didn't dare, dare talk to girls I had crushes on or let them know or anything. I had a conversation with someone about that this week. I didn't dare even talk to them. I knew I couldn't get them to go out with me. Why bother? Where my friends would say, I'm going to get her to go out with me. I would say, I'm going to stay away from her. Because I, I'll never get her. But they had that confidence. They had that confidence. Why? Because they had gotten it before. They had, they had had other girls interested in them before. How was I supposed to have confidence? Everything I did was an adjunct failure. This disease squeezed the life out of me. 
I was a tube of toothpaste that was run over by a semi-trailer. There was nothing left inside. All I wanted was to die. I begged God every day, please just let me die. Please just let me die. And he whispered on my heart and there was an ember in there that was unsinged by my desire to die. And it burst into flames and it sustains me to this day. The will to live was cut out of me by the food. I was an object of ridicule. I couldn't walk, I couldn't sit, I couldn't stand. I couldn't function, I couldn't live, I couldn't go among people and not be an object of ridicule. This disease squeezed everything out of me that it could. This disease came into my life like a, like a curse, like a tornado, and it just ransacked my life. I was too young to fight back. I was too young to know what to do. So I begged God for death. There's only one reason that I survived. So I could tell you what I went through. My fears, my hopes and dreams that were extinguished, my anger, my disappointment and my humiliation might save your life. I hate to say this because I, I don't want to believe this is true because I, I want to know that maybe there's a greater thing. But if everything I went through saves your life, I'm not going to say it was worth it. I'm going to say it's a good thing then. Page 124. I'm going to just quote you something from page 124. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. If I can do that for you, I'm not going to say it was worth it. I won't. I'm not going to lie here. I'm not going to say it was worth it. I wish I had a time machine. I wish I could go back to high school. I wish I could go back to high school with what I know now not only academically, but socially. I wish I could, I wish I could get a do-over, but I can't. But what I am gonna say is, it's been a long journey. I hope that maybe someday one of you will be able to say, I averted a lot of pain because of the people that went before me, not just me, but all of us who went before you. Some of you younger people, you're the future of OA. You're the future. We won't be around anymore. I'm 67 years old. How many, how much time you think I have left? I don't have that much more time left. I'm going to be 68 here the end part of May. Me and Nancy J have the same birthday, but uh, it's going to be up to you. It's going to be up to you. The mental blank spot, the mind, that was the subject of what we did today. The mental part of this disease. And from now on, we're not going to talk about the food in this book. We're going to talk about the mind. We're going to talk about the solution. And what the solution is, is going to make you feel okay so that you can live another day and things will not get to the point where you will have to say, I'm going to eat Mounds bars. I'm going to eat whatever it is you like to eat. 
because it will not build to that point. Now, before I turn this over, we did finish okay. Before I turn this over, I'm gonna ask you a couple of things to remember. Number one, June the 4th, not May 4th, June the 4th, no big book that week. We're going to Los Angeles. Uh, I don't know if they're going to record it. I don't know if they're going to have Zoom. I, I have no idea, not a clue. And it's above my pay grade. And to tell you the truth, there's three of them that are going to decide it. I'm not one of the three. Definitely not one of those three people. Uh, I hope to have a good time in LA. I haven't been out of, oh yes, I, I went home last, I went home last year for a meeting, but I haven't been out of, um, I haven't been on a big book weekend for a long, long time. So I'm kind of looking forward to it, but I'm kind of nervous too. All right, before we turn this open to questions, number one, no math questions, no math, no nothing, no math, 